Well, we come today to the end of the line, so to speak, to the end of the biblical storyline that we have been tracing low these many months now. We began some time back in the book of Genesis, and then over a series of more than 30 gatherings like this, we have walked our way progressively through the entire Bible, many of us reading the Scriptures, maybe even for the first time at that uh, breadth and depth for ourselves. We come now to close with the book of Revelation. And I think it is safe to say that no part of the Bible has sparked more fascination, speculation, and controversy than the 22 chapters that make up this final book of the Scriptures. Endless debates have raged over the meaning of the various figures and symbols that are described here and over the precise timeline by which the events that are laid out there are actually supposed to happen. Whole denominations and theological institutions have been established or broken up on the basis of differing views on what Revelation really says. In fact, I'm I'm praying that the fight is not going to break out in the stands today as we talk about these things. Back at the turn of Y2K, I devoted 16 sermons to the subject of the book of Revelation uh, and hardly did justice to the power and depth of this amazing book. The mystery and meaning of this book is inexhaustible. If you're interested in plunging deeper into an inquiry on these topics, you can visit our website's media library. Just click on the future faith icon you'll find down at the bottom of the uh, sermons page there, and you'll have more than you want probably uh, to read. Suffice it to say that we're going to only be able to skim the surface of this gigantic book this morning. I've actually decided to come back next week with a PS to our series and look in depth at the implications of the first five chapters of the book of Revelation for the state of the church today, for the state of spirituality in America today. If you're tuning in by television or radio with us this morning, then that was the message we aired last week. The book of Revelation begins famously with these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. Take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. In these few verses, we learn, I think, several important things about the book that we're about to review. First, while the precise words of Revelation are written down by the Apostle John while he is in exile on the island of Patmos, this is not a mere human being's fancy or fantasy about future events. This is not just a dream. This is not just wishful thinking. It is not a hallucination. The very same Jesus who showed himself so prescient about future events, so trustworthy in his capacity to declare what lay in front of him. This same Jesus in the Gospels is now about to speak to the church again through the power of his Holy Spirit in a revelation about very important things. 
Secondly, Jesus is giving us this revelation in in order to equip us, these opening verses suggest. He's going to equip us to understand and to handle what is happening around the believers and what is to come. And finally, we are told in these opening verses that if we will not just read the words of this prophecy, but actually hear the message and take it into our hearts, then we will be blessed. And I pray we will be this morning. So what does Christ want his servants to hear in these words to the saints? And how is this revelation of blessing? In a nutshell, Christ is telling his followers that one day this storyline that we've all been traveling on is going to come to an end. The great spiritual battle that began back in Genesis, back at the beginning between the forces of sin and death and evil on the one side and the power and purposes of God on the other side. This great battle that we've been tracing all through the past year is going to intensify. It's going to finally come to a dramatic climax and then it will ultimately be resolved. And in the end, There will come an era when Jesus Christ makes all things new. To put it in shorthand, the message of the book of Revelation, it's going to get worse, but Jesus comes again and makes it right. And God wins, and so do those who stick with God. This is the great message of the book of Revelation in brief. Now, as I said at the start, the precise order and way in which all of this unfolds is a matter of some lively debate within Christian circles. There are at least four major schools of thinking on this eschatology, this study of the end times, the last things. These four camps go by $10 titles like postmillennialist, historical premillennialist, dispensational premillennialist, and amillennialist. These are wonderful words to talk around, to toss around in the cocktail party, the fellowship hall. People love to talk about this stuff. If you're interested in exploring these various ways of looking at Revelation in greater depth, I highly commend a little booklet called Christ and the Millennium, available through the church's bookstore. Because so many people have read the Left Behind series. How many of you have read at least one of those books or watched one of the videos? Yeah, and I imagine a lot of you are just being shy because this has been an enormously widespread bestseller. Because that is the case. Let me just mention that those particular books are based on the dispensational premillennialist point of view. And I, for one, appreciate any literature that brings the broad themes of the Bible to life. Uh, In that series, the broad themes of Revelation are truly brought to life in contemporary terms. But I believe, personally, that the amillennialist view holds greater conformity to the scriptures, the broad counsel of scriptures as I meet it. I want to emphasize, however, that it is not the differences. It is not the variations in 
these four different schools of interpretation that is the most important thing. The most important thing is what all of these views have in common. And if you'll permit me, I want to try and describe six shared beliefs that I hope will be a blessing to you, shared by Christians, a blessing to you, if you'll take it into your heart as you go with you this morning. In the first place, one of the most common beliefs that Christians derive from reading the book of Revelation is that the outworking of God's purposes takes a long time. (laughs) It takes a long time. In Revelation chapter 20, we're told that a period of a thousand years will go by in the unfolding of the last stage of history. And that during this time, the power of evil is going to be cast down. The devil, Satan, is going to be cast down in a major way, but not finished off finally. It is the divergence of opinion over the nature of this millennium that accounts for a lot of the differences between the four different schools of interpretation that I mentioned earlier. People in the premillennialist school of thought see the millennium as referring to a literal 1,000 years occurring before the return of Jesus Christ. Their major concern is to figure out, has the clock begun? Is the startup still out there in some place? Where exactly are we on that timeline? Those of us in the amillennialist camp Read the thousand years not as a literal period, but as a symbolic number of the kind that is found throughout the book of Revelation, other apocalyptic literature, like the number seven or the number 12. The number 10 in the Bible is always intended to signify fulfillment, completion. Therefore, 10 times 10 times 10, a thousand, is a lot of completion, isn't it? It's, it's a perfectly rounded, abundant completion of purpose. We believe that a thousand represents a long period in which God is fulfilling his final purposes. We don't know how many actual years that means chronologically. The Thousand years are a poetic way of describing the great space of time between the decisive D-Day blow that Christ struck against evil during his earthly ministry. The mortal blow he dealt to evil on the cross. It's the time between that decisive D-Day moment and the final armistice when Jesus will return and complete the victory. Bring about the perfect peace. The Gospels clearly say that Jesus bound and cast down Satan during his earthly ministry. Jesus himself declares it. Apparent fulfillment of this vision of the thousand years is involving the plunging of Satan into the abyss. And like Hitler after D-Day, Satan still has the capacity to do damage. But he can no longer completely deceive the nations any longer about the light and the truth of God because Jesus has revealed it in an incandescent way. And it's now afoot upon the planet. And as Martin Luther puts it famously in his mighty fortress hymn, 
Lo, evil's doom is sure because of what Jesus has done. People in the post-millennialist school see the thousand years described in Revelation as referring to a period after the second coming of Christ, when they believe Jesus is going to reign on a literal throne in the city of Jerusalem, assisted by Jewish and Gentile converts and no doubt a lot of helpful news media. To support this argument, they cite the passage in Revelation chapter 20 that speaks of people sitting on thrones who come to life and reigned with Christ. Whenever thrones are spoken of elsewhere in the book of Revelation, however, the scene is always the halls of heaven. And for this reason, among others, I believe that the image that we're being given in Revelation chapter 20 is simply an assurance that the spirits of those Christians who have died are with God. And some of them are your friends and your family members and your loved ones. That they're safe with God in the throne room of heaven until that coming day when all will experience the bodily resurrection to come. Any way you cut it, the important idea amongst all joined but shared by all of the, the different camps is that the unfolding of the final stage of history is a lengthy one to say the least. Christians agree, secondly, that the time between Christ's first and second coming will be marked by certain intensifying signs of the times and troubles. Back in the Gospels, Jesus himself said that there would be warnings that the end was coming. Wars and environmental calamities will increase, Jesus said persecution of Christ's followers will rise markedly and many will fall away from the faith or actually turn against fellow believers under the heat of this pressure. In these last days, false prophets will rise up and gain huge followings. The spread of a worldwide global media makes this more conceivable than ever before. The love of people, Jesus said, will grow cold. That which is most beautiful and important about human beings, love, will grow cold in the last days. But the end will not come until the gospel of God's kingdom has been preached in all the nations and people groups of this world. God wants everyone to have the opportunity to receive the invitation. The book of Revelation calls this period the time of tribulation, the time of troubling. As the dragon, which is the apocalyptic name for that serpent Satan we met long ago in the Garden of Eden, as the dragon still thrashes in his death throes, and as God pours out a variety of preliminary judgments upon sin, trying now with tough love as he did long ago when he judged Israel and sent them into exile, trying now through, through trying his people to make every person possible repent and turn to him. It's why he lets the wars and he lets the famines and he lets these things go, hoping that the world 
that did not respond to grace and blessing alone would turn now in these cataclysms to him. When powerful instruments of evil rise up. Revelation uses terms like the Antichrist and the beast and the great prostitute. These mysterious figures will rear their ugly heads and do great spiritual and physical damage. There will be great apostasy, which is distortion of truth and and disfiguring of moral character. It will happen within the church even more intensely in this period of time and and an even more pronounced rebellion against God by the non-believing world will mount up in this period. These are the images given to us by the book of Revelation of the tribulation. But then there will come a turning point in the storyline. There will become a there will start a decisive segment of the storyline. And Christians unite thirdly in affirming that in these last days Jesus will return and will resurrect the living and the dead. And let me just say something about that. Do you remember how Jesus snuck into Bethlehem? Do you remember how Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not? Do you remember how Pilate and Herod and the Pharisees could not recognize in this peasant, in this carpenter, in this unschooled rabbi, the presence of God? Do you remember this? When Jesus comes the second time, there will be no missing it. There will be no mistaking who he is. For the visions that the book of Revelation gives us of him, more on this in the message on the opening chapters, the vision we get of Jesus of, is one of cataclysmic authority and power. The lamb is now the lion. And every knee will bow, if not in devotion, in abject awe and reverent fear before the presence of the Lord. And the dead will be raised. And those who are alive will also be raised. Christians vary in their understanding of whether there will be a single resurrection or different resurrections for Christians on the one hand, for Jews on the other, for Gentiles. My view is the ba-millennial view. I'm just a poor sheep. I trust the shepherd on these points. Leave it to him. And let it go. The fourth point of common belief among Christians is that those believers who are still alive will be raised to meet the returning Christ and will be given new physical forms. In technical terms, this event is referred to as the rapture. Again, the precise nature of this rapture is what provides fodder for discussion in Christian circles. Some interpreters suggest that that Jesus is going to come partway down from heaven. And then he's going to take Christians off the earth and spare them for the worst part of this whole period of tribulation. And then Jesus up in the air, is going to do a U-turn and go back up into heaven, taking the believers with him. And then later he's going to come back down 
to rule from Jerusalem with Jews who have been converted during a seven-year period of tribulation. Now, I personally think this interpretation is based on a questionable reading of an obscure passage in the book of Daniel, a basic misreading of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, to which I'm going to return in a moment. But let me confess to you that I would like this U-turn theory of the rapture to be true. Why? Because I don't want to be here when it gets really bad. I would love to be out of here. But if you study the scriptures, if you study the pattern of God and his word and the teaching of Jesus about the nature of discipleship, then you may recognize the convenient escape model as yet one more way in which we get to continue to believe that Jesus will do all the suffering for us. When he told us that his followers would need to be willing to walk the way of the cross. In fact, we're told by Jesus himself that even that it was for the sake of the elect, and I quote, the sake of the believers, that God in his grace cuts the greatest time of tribulation short. And if that's true, it can't be that we're in heaven because we wouldn't care how short the tribulation was. The U-turn theory is largely based on 1 Thessalonians 4, which is a wonderful passage, a very beautiful passage which speaks of going to meet the Lord in the air. I'm sure you've heard this at many a funeral. Um, Here, however, Paul is using a Greek term in the New Testament, in the culture of that day, that was used to describe the act by which people in a city would go outside the walls of the city to greet a visiting dignitary. And then they would return to the city, bringing the dignitary with them, offering them a place in their home. And this is, I believe, precisely the vision that we're being given in 1 Thessalonians 4. At this moment, Christ is coming back. And, and the believers go to meet him. It's a reversal of the picture of the end of the story of the prodigal son, in which it's the father that's going out in joy to meet the lost son. Now it's the, it's the, it's the sinful people going out with gratitude to meet their Savior and then bringing, coming back with him. To the world that we know. He is not, I think, talking about Christians flying off the planet to escape tribulation. He is picturing the image of a single second coming in which Christ descends, is met by the believers, he gives them glorious new physical forms, and then he comes to make his home with them forevermore. That's what I think the book teaches. The fifth belief on which Christians agree is that there will be a day of judgment. I wish there was a way around this message, which is very clearly conveyed in Revelation 19 through 21. But there's no way around this message. If you've been following the biblical storyline with us these past months, then you know that the patience of God is off the charts amazing. How many times did we see it as we studied the story? How many times did people fall down on the job? 
turn their backs on God, fail in some terrible way. How many cycles of that did we watch? And God hung in there. God waited. God forgave. God offered second chances. How many times? Too many to count. Too many to count. But the scriptures, the scriptures teach that when death occurs for anyone, or when Jesus Christ comes again, if that should happen before we die, whichever comes first, the door of opportunity closes. And those who have rejected the authority of Christ, whether they're human beings or angelic beings, will spend eternity in a place without God. They will be given infinite choice of no God, of no relationship with the real God, if that's their choice. They'll spend eternity in a place which Revelation calls the lake of fire. And others can't come to call Gehenna, the trash heap or hell. The exact nature of that place is the subject for another day. But suffice to say that it is a place that no one wants to go to. And more importantly, no one has to. The good news <laughs> is that what God desperately wants is that every single being wind up in a very different sort of place. And one of the most helpful and encouraging verses in all of the Bible is also found in the book of Revelation when Jesus says, Here I am. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I will come in, no matter what your history, no matter what your continuing doubts or struggles, I will come in and eat with you, commune with you, and you with me. Is there somebody here this morning hearing these words upon whose door the Lord himself is knocking, knocking right now? Don't miss the moment of opportunity. While the door can be open, don't miss it. Respond to his invitation. Invite him in. Talk with me after the service today. Pick up the phone and call me, email me. We'll talk about what it looks like to let Christ be at home in your heart and to move through the house of your life. Don't miss the glorious good that God has for you. For you see, there's a sixth and final message in the book of Revelation upon which all of Christian interpreters absolutely agree. Jesus is going to make everything new. Those who surrender to the authority of Christ in this life are going to be ushered into the priceless privilege of spending eternity with him amongst redeemed people. Better than the people that sit by us today. Though some of them will, maybe all of them will be there. But redeemed people. I, I imagine they're all singing in perfect pitch then. It's part of my dream. And at the end, we'll be ushered into a refreshed earth, the book of Revelation says. In Revelation 21, the Apostle John is given a glimpse of this glory. 
he sees Christ creating an entirely new heaven and a new earth. No longer is anything. The images of a sea of separation suddenly being removed and heaven and earth come together, the spiritual, the physical, now integrated perfectly together. And he sees the community of the faithful who are described here as the holy city, the new Jerusalem. He sees them now utterly glorified, cleansed of all sin, refined and renewed, dressed in pure white like a virgin bride, the most magnificent bride you've ever seen on her wedding day, walking into the presence of the bridegroom. And in this new marriage, this new world, God dwells permanently in community with humanity. And because he is life in itself, love and hope and comfort in himself, the scriptures say there will be no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying or or pain and so much of the agonies that have stained the experience of life on this planet. For the old order of things has passed away, says John. And I've seen it. He's shown me it. And then as the final chapter of the revelation unfolds, John begins to describe a scene that is vaguely familiar. A scene that is buried somewhere deep in our genes, somewhere profoundly down in our collective unconscious. A memory of a place far, far back at the start of the storyline in a garden that once upon a time was humanity's home. Our home. And John says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. As clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month, abundance, fruitfulness, supply, everything required, all of it there, and no longer will there be any curse, writes John. No curse of sin to mar humanity. For the circle of love in which men and women once lived in communion with God and one another has now been perfectly restored. And it just goes on. Unbroken. And the throne of God and of the Lamb, writes John, will be in the city. And his servants will serve him as he has served them. And they will kneel before his throne and they will cast down their crowns happily before him and they will cry, holy, holy, holy is the lamb who was slain for he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. And the song 
will ring out for all of eternity and they will see his face, says John. They'll know Jesus. They'll know God in all the fullness of his presence and his name. His identity will be on their foreheads. They'll be his family. There will be no more night, the scriptures say. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God, the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever.